0: Everyone and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Patty Conklin. Patty is a world-class energy healer and much sought-after facilitator who has shared her experiences and changed lives at hundreds of workshops, lectures, conferences throughout the last two decades. She's a frequent keynote speaker and presenter at alternative and allopathic conventions. She's the creator of Colorworks, a visualization process that uses active vibration within your body to release or heal specific symptoms, emotions, or physical challenges. Now, she's put all of this knowledge together in her new book, God Within. The day God's train stopped, and we'll have to talk about that tagline later because it's very cute, and I am so happy to welcome Patty Conklin.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Miriam. It's a delight.
0: Patty, I so enjoyed your book, and it really opened my eyes to a lot of aspects of vibration and energy healing that I was not aware of. And I. I'm looking forward to exploring them with you. Wonderful. Now, let's start with words. You mentioned a quote from the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. Tell us about the power of words and how they affect us.
1: Well, you know, that that uh, chapter of the Bible, it's uh, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, and it said, First there was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was within God. And when I think about word, word is a frequency. And uh, I believe that the universe in its infiniteness is actually frequency. And out of millennia evolved the consciousness that we consider to be God, goddess, source, creator, father, whatever we want to call it. Um, But the word is so profound because the word in our world um, just... um, Everything you say is going into your cellular body, into your cells themselves.
0: Hmm. Now, and, you say, you say and, that you see words above people's heads.
1: Yeah, I do. And, and that was my favorite pastime as a teenager. And I didn't realize that other people didn't see that. Um, but I would watch people um, speak. And as I watched them speak, it would the words and the emotions... They carried would then go um, down into the body and store, and and the thing that intrigued me as I was reading uh, chapter you know John chapter um, in the Bible was if you go to verse 14 I believe it is it says and the word created form, and as I watched people speak and I watched the words go into their body and the energies go into their body I began to realize that they literally are storing and becoming dense and becoming the particles within themselves were becoming more dense, more solid, slower moving. And that disease was actually coming in, you know, as the end result of those behaviors and words going into the system.
0: Hmm. Just out of curiosity, do words look different in different languages?
1: Um, they do not. They, <laughs> that's a very, that's a, because I've, I've traveled all over this world and, and uh, it does not, words do not look different. But um, having said that, Um, culturally, depending upon the culture, the emphasis in life, the words that are spoken um, and how they're spoken, um, will create specific diseases for specific cultures.
0: Hmm. Now, you had been very ill and you were going downhill fast until you realized that you actually had the power to heal yourself. Tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, I had both forms of lupus which is an incurable, always fatal disease, especially when you have both forms. And I was critically ill for three years. It took out my right kidney. I had two heart failures, ulcerations, nerve damage, everything, Um, just very critical for three years. And the doctors said I wouldn't live much more than another six or seven years. And um, I had what I considered to be a visitation, and I was shown how to move color through my body. And I immediately did it. Nothing happened. And I thought, why are you showing me something that doesn't work. And, um, and so I began to really think about my life and I was working in PhD positions, um, where I had a high school education and I felt like I had to work hundred hour weeks in order to prove myself worthy of, of being, um, uh, you know, being in that position. And people would say to me, "Oh, you need to take a vacation. And I'd say, I'll, I'll, take a vacation on my deathbed for right now i need to work and my and my body created the deathbed for me um, Mm. to show me and and it really was twofold for me one it showed me that i could heal myself and secondly it it helped years later as i began my practice um, to have been facing death and to be so critically ill um that it certainly helps with my clients today in helping them get through that fear
0: now, what was the insight that you achieved regarding the nature of frequency?
1: For me, for the lupus, was some um, self-worth. And, and I realized that my self-worth was not, was not um, uh, good. And so what I said to my body was, what color do I need to remove my lack of self-worth What color do I need to increase my self-worth by 80%? And what color do I need to remove the lupus? And I just asked those three questions together, and the next day symptoms stopped, and a year later my blood work was perfect. So, it helped me understand that, that color and tone were the active frequencies in the universe, and everything else, essential oils, Reiki, crystals, while they can be incredibly helpful, they're passive frequencies. They don't actually get inside the cell to help release. So, and that was a huge understanding.
0: So, how do the frequencies of thought, emotion, and color differ?
1: Um, the, the frequency of emotion and thought, or words and emotions, um, merge together. And, and it's just like particles. I, if you're watching television and the, snow, and the cable goes out and you get the snow, you've got those particles. So the words for me and the emotion attached with it are different shades of gray. Um, and everything's just kind of in this, this gray Gray white area, um, and but the active frequencies coming up through, um, while they may not be different in in color than the stored emotions, um, they actually vibrate. and and shake, Um, so you've got all these particles that are moving and vibrating and shaking and other particles that are just being still, and as that shaking particle comes up through, which is color or tone, um, it starts shaking the the non-moving frequency, and that's really what the disease is, is the emotion and the words stored in the peptide of your cell, and those particles are literally coming into those particles that are inert and shaking them free, and, and removing that emotion from your body.
0: How fascinating. I remember um, reading about uh, some shamanic healing that's called shaking medicine.
1: Hmm, yeah.
0: It's just a different form of...
1: Sounds like it.
0: Vibration. I think it's yeah. sound as well. Um, now, you describe an evolutionary process of our souls. What do you mean by conditional and unconditional?
1: Well, the, the evolutionary process, I think, is, is this. And this is just a pattyism Because remember, I've never, I've never uh, taken formal training. So this is just my, my, uh, my take on it. But I think that at one time, billions and quadrillions of souls broke off from source in order to have their own individual sojourns and adventures. And I think that the souls that started coming to this, this atmosphere, this planet... Um, were high vibrational beings. They didn't have shape or form. And over time, um, the evolution of time, they began having emotions and emotions that were less than unconditional, i.e. out of love. And, and so maybe they were jealousy or, or uh, anger or hatred or rage, whatever it is, and fear, certainly. And uh, what it did was it started slowing down the frequency until we became form and so the auric field, the chakra system that a lot of people talk about, I think was added on um, so, that, um, so that the body could still vibrate in sync with the universe. And I think over the last five, 7,000 years, we've managed to muck it up. Um, and so when we're looking at an unconditional thought, we're truly looking at it as the observer. Uh, when we're looking at a conditional thought, we're looking at it as in fear. So you've got all the subsets of fear, you know, um, anger, jealousy, you know, all of those. And the only one that stays in the love portion is truly observation. Um, it's not even really unconditional love because that in and of itself is a condition. Um, so it really becomes, you become the observer in, uh, in that aspect. And it's, it's really important to stay the observer and, and not the conditionalism.
0: Well, now, that raises a kind of intriguing question in my mind. Um, If we are uh, kind of offshoots, what you call the divine spark within, Mm -hmm. uh, here to be the eyes and ears of source, um, then uh, we are uh, creating this density so that we can experience these emotions so that we can kind of I don't know provide drama and interest to source
1: (laughs) it's 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 true the the, the
0: earth soap opera
1: it's it's the Earth soap opera. It's a, it's actually a feeling state um, that that source really doesn't have. If you if you have experienced an angel, they're incredibly robotic. They they don't have sense of humor. They don't have a lot of things. They're incredibly robotic, and so when you're looking at um, an angel versus a, you know a spirit guide, whatever, a spirit guide will have a sense of humor because they've had human form. So I think what's important to understand is there's two pieces literally inside of you. Most people just think of the soul, but it's not just the soul. It's the soul and then the divine spark. So you've got the soul and then behind the soul, you've got the tunnel that, that, deep, uh, dark part of you, um, everything you fear, everything you hate. And then you have the piece of the divine, that pure piece of the universe that's still inside of you. And so, you know, my my push for people is, okay, your soul, you need to understand your soul. Your soul is here for the growth spurt and the learning, that physical, physicalness of the the, of the drama and that's a very true true point um but then it's going through the fear state and balancing out the fear and the soul in order to get to the divine peace that's inside of you
0: Hmm. very interesting i was also you, you touched on this briefly but i was fascinated by your description of the body's two energy systems um, the, the auric system and the um, uh, subtle energy, and particularly the relationship between the subtle energy and the immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, tell our readers about that.
1: Yeah, the uh, auric field, again, as far as I'm concerned, was an add-on in order to keep us vibrating in sync with the universe. Um, but the, um, the subtle energy field is the energy... Field that we came to this planet with, and in science we would call it the immune system. It's its actual density, and and that's the one thing for people if you if you really want to understand the difference between the auric field and the and the subtle energy field, if you're having work done on your auric field then your auric fields, um, you know, people will be doing energy work and Reiki, therapeutic touch, whatever, on your energy uh, auric field. And it feels wonderful. You know, when you're done with that, you may be drowsy and very calm and you feel good. But if you're working within the subtle energy field, which is where the words actually stored along with their emotions, then chances are very good when you're done with that kind of a session you're going to be nauseated. You're going to have a low-grade fever. You're going to, um, you know, maybe have diarrhea, vomiting uh, for a short period of time. And that's when you know that you've actually cleared the emotions, the toxins uh, from the body out at that time. And, And it's fascinating. You know, people used to say to me, you're the only practitioner I know that people feel worse when they leave you than when they came to see you. And I'm like, Yeah, but um, they're actually taking physical matter out of their body just as though they were having surgery, simply by using color and tone.
0: This actually reminds me of uh, a a film I just watched recently about John of God doing um, his uh, psychic surgery, and Uh and really physical surgery, and and pulling stuff out of the body. It sounds... Very similar. And I wonder if, um, this is perhaps the explanation of the placebo effect.
1: And it certainly could be. Doctors have said all over the world, you know, how do we know that this isn't psychosomatic and placebo? <clears throat> and my response is it really doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not married into either one. Um, but where is Joao? And what's fascinating with, with, with John of God in, um, uh, in his physical um, in his physical surgeries um, is, you know, when he cuts someone open, um, they don't bleed and, and they don't experience pain. Um, And uh, you know, he'll, he'll be talking to five other people while he's doing a very complex surgery um, and not even paying attention because he's called what's incorporated, incorporating at that time. Um, For me, if I'm told specifically by father, source to take a disease from someone. um, It literally transmutes from their body into my body without me having to pick up a knife, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my doctors are are wonderful. I've got a wonderful group of MDs that work with me who take my blood work every six months and kind of keep track of things. And if I...
0: This is physical MDs who work with you personally. Yes,
1: physical MDs who work with me personally. So, um, you know, they may call and say, wow, you know, you're showing full-blown diabetes. And I'll say, you know, I had two diabetics this week. Just, you know, we'll check my blood again in 48 hours and it'll be gone. Um, Or I'll show cancer um, of various parts of the body. Um, But when I'm personally ill, which is very rare, but if i'm personally ill um they're so cute because they like okay give us the you know give us the diseases that you've worked with within the last 10 days so we can make sure that you know you just don't have residual that you haven't gotten rid of um and that it's actually tied into one of your clients so it's it's wonderful to have md's and md's around the world who really are beginning to get it they- phenomenal technology, um, but they realize there's a piece missing and the piece missing is that energy piece.
0: Now, the healing techniques that you developed, you've used with over a hundred thousand people, which is pretty impressive by any (laughs) standard. You call them color works and tone works. They seem so simple. So how do they have such a profound effect?
1: I think because they are so simple. Um, They're simply using frequency. And if you, you know, there's a lot of books out there and a lot of beliefs about what emotion equals what color. Um, and in my work, it, one has nothing to do with the other. Um, the sicker somebody is, typically the colors they're going to draw into their body, if they ask their body, you know, what color do I need to take, Um you know, the abandonment from my right breast that's creating breast cancer, um, then, you know, they're going to bring a color in and chances are it's going to be black or it's going to be, uh, you know, a deep brown. And people want to go, oh my gosh, you know, why am I pulling in that color? And it's like, you're pulling in that color because that's the frequency that the body needs in order to do what you just ask it to do. And and understanding that those are very dense frequencies they move very slowly. They're very harsh on your body. But what they do is they shake that emotion. Um, let's say it's abandonment in the right breast. You know, it shakes that emotion out of the breast so that the breast can start getting energy moving through it again and healing from the cancer. So, you know, it's, it's really important to stop putting emotion um, in relation to or a, you know, a, a sense of emotion in relation to a color. Um, because in this work, you're just looking for frequency. And, and what people have forgotten is that your body will do what you ask it to do. You just have to ask it. Um, you know, let's say you have a migraine and you're barely able to function and you've gotta to go to work. If you lay down quietly and say to your body, "Body, thank you so much for making me aware that there's an emotion I need to look at. Will you please reduce my pain by 80% so that I can function today and breathe for a few minutes? Chances are your body's going to do exactly what you've asked it to do. But how many of us sit and take the time and actually do that anymore? You know, we just don't.
0: On the contrary, we keep on focusing on our pain and it's like buying <laughs> exactly. it.
1: And the thing is, the body doesn't have discernment capabilities. You know, you're, every cell in your body has a respiratory, circulation, skeletal system, but it doesn't have a it doesn't have a brain. And so, your body doesn't know when you don't want something. So, if you wake up in the morning and your partner says, "How do you feel this morning?" you go, "Oh, I feel awful." Your body goes, "Okay, all right, I can do that for you." But if you said, you know what, thank you for asking, and in 10 minutes I'm going to feel terrific, then you've reprogrammed your body to let go of the pain in that given moment. But if we focus on how we feel, our body's just going to go, okay, I can do that for you, and, um, and, and just go ahead and, and uh, take care of it that way. So now, I think it's just really important for people to understand that.
0: Do these techniques work with people who cannot visualize colors?
1: Yes. And, you know, when I do my own work, um, I can't see color. And so I just trust that my body's bringing in the frequency that I need because the colors are going to change drastically, you know, throughout just even one breath. And what's important to note is that there will be colors that we don't have words for, that we don't have labels for, um, that we don't see typically with with our physical eyes. So, you know, it moves into if you're not seeing it or hearing it, it's a matter of trusting that your body's doing exactly what you're asking it to do.
0: Is there a difference between the use of color and the use of tone?
1: Color moves through a little bit faster. Usually you can just do one session in 10, 12 minutes. Um, Tone, you typically need to listen to for about a half hour. The advantage to tone, though, is if you're willing to sit for a half hour and let it run through the front of your body, out through the back of your body, is that you can continue to listen to the music and actually get up and do things around the house or, you know, out in the garden, whatever, while still listening to the music, and your body will continue to process. Um, Color, you can sit for 10 or 12 minutes and get a lot done. Uh, tone just takes longer, but you can you can do more more things while you're still listening.
0: Well, you say listening, so what, you, you say, body, what song do you need to uh, heal this? And then you nope. put on your CD, or what?
1: Typically, what you do is you pick out some kind of symphony orchestra music. And picking out that symphony orchestra music with no vocals, what you want is something that has a wide range of instruments. And, um, and you put on the music and you ask your body specifically what you're asking it to do. You can't just, if you were to say body, what tone do I need to heal your body's response would be, where do you want me to start? (laughs) It's just, it's, (laughs) it's not, it's not specific enough information. And Mm -hmm. so if you, if you were to say, what tone do I need to remove the pain in my knee and nothing, you know, you listen to the music and you still have pain in your knee, then what you'd really want to do is say, body, what tone do I need to bring into my consciousness the emotion behind the pain in my knee? Mm. And just journal for 10 days, you know, not reading back what you had written the day before. And after 10 days reading it, and you'll see the emotion that's causing the pain in your knee. It will just stand right out, and then you can be specific. What color do I need to remove the frustration from my knee, or you know the anger from my knee? Whatever it is.
0: Now, you also do something called cellular cleansing. What is that?
1: Cellular cleansing is an offshoot of Color Works. Um, color Works will you know works um, beautifully. It's easy to do, but you usually only take one emotion per 30 to 45 days. And, um, and you know, we're filled with emotion. (laughs) So it can take a long period of time to get healthy. And I kept saying, how can I create something that will take 50 to 70% of all of the emotions in the body and neutralize them in one day or two days, whatever it is. And, um, and I developed cellular cleansing. And cellular cleansing is a way of just visualizing a dirty room. And what your body's literally giving you is a representation of all of the emotions from that given time period. And you're cleaning it, and then you're creating something beautiful and spectacular, and you're refilling your cells with that beauty and spectacular you know, spectacular confidence and, you know, awesomeness. And, um, it's done simply without thinking of any memories. You don't have to go back to any events. You don't have to know what the emotions were that year. The body just takes it from there.
0: Clever body. Uh (laughs) Before we go, you have to tell us why you, uh, entitled your book, God within the day God's train stopped.
1: Oh goodness. Um, when I was seven, I had my first visitation and, um, and father told me that my greatest growth years would be 38 to 42. And, um, so right before my 38th birthday, I was in a dream state and father always comes to me in a waking state, you know, during the course of the day, Jesus will come to me if my personal life is going to change. And he always comes in a dream. And so I was in a dream and I was on a train and all of a sudden I realized the train stopped and I looked out the window and the train was off the track and I turned back around and Jesus and Mother Mary were standing there. And that was the first time I had ever experienced Mother Mary. And Jesus looked at me and he said, we're now giving you a choice. You can get off the train and live your life and raise your family and and have a good life or you will put the train back on the tracks and you will live your life in service, um, to father and, um, and do the work that he's asked you to do. And, um, so somber and so serious. And so I thought about it for a moment and I asked him to put the train back on the track. And next thing I knew the train lifted up, put, was put on the track and 18 years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So, That was, and and everybody said, oh, you don't want to put that title. And I'm like, that title means everything to me because it was definitely the moment of choice.
0: (laughs) Patty, what is your website?
1: The website is pattyconklin.com and that's P-A-T-T-I-C-O-N-K-L-I-N.com.
0: Patty Conklin, author of God Within, The Day God's Train Stopped. Patty, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me on, Miriam.
0: And now we have a special treat. We have a second guest and a second host. Um, We have with us Frederick Glacier, Frederick is an epic poet and the author and editor of several books, including A Parliament of Poets, which we shall discuss today. He holds a master's degree in English from the University of Michigan, and he's taught American non-Western literature and world religions. He's been a Fulbright Hayes and NEH scholar on China and India, and he's lived and taught in Japan and on the Colorado River Indian Tribes Reservation in Arizona, a man of many parts, and I am pleased to have him with us today. Welcome, Frederick.
2: Hello, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be with you and your guests. Thank you. I'm also
0: delighted that Julie Clayton, our Reviews Editor, is with us today, and she will be co-hosting with me and um, actually interviewing Frederick. So I know that Julie really enjoyed his book, and that's why she wrote such a fantastic review. Good. And that's why I invited her to take over the interview with Frederick. Welcome, Julie. Hi, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for letting me be part of this.
3: Hi,
2: Frederick. Nice to talk with you. Hi, Julie. Nice to uh, speak with you again and uh, all the listeners.
3: Uh, so Miriam is, is quite right. I was so impressed with with Parliament of Poets, uh, your book. And I have to admit, uh, I was at first a bit hesitant to, to read an epic poem, which is what this book is. Uh, it's not something one comes across every day.
2: No, it can be an intimidating idea <laughs> to people today. It sounds so deftly dull and uh, whatever. You think of Homer thousands of years ago or something. But really, uh, maybe a better way of thinking about it is it's like a story around a campfire, as one uh, person at a epic poetry reading, reading I uh, gave uh, responded. And in that way, I'm really trying to create a story, sort of like what the shamans would tell in the ancient caves or whatever.
3: And, and that really does come across. Uh, so perhaps you could say a little bit about what an epic poem is, for those who are not familiar with that term, uh, and a little bit about
2: the book, that would be great. All right, uh, my pleasure. Now. Uh, You know, there's a very long tradition of epic poetry, not just uh, in Western tradition, sort of Greek, Roman civilization, but uh, East and West as well. In India, uh, in China, there are epic forms and uh, uh, many other civilizations, African and so forth. So I'm really try. I decided as uh, sort of in my mid-twenties, uh, I was uh, back in 1982 or earlier, that I wanted to write an epic poem, try to write an epic poem that would be a global, universal vision. All the past epics, for logical reasons, were all regional, local. Uh, that is focused on, of course, uh, Greece, Rome, Africa, or India, wherever. So I wanted to try to write the first global epic poem, perhaps, uh, that would embrace the entire planet and draw from the the religions and the literatures of all civilizations. And uh, I truly have spent more than 30 years studying and trying to figure out how to do that in a way that would also honor the literary traditions of East and West as well. So uh, I draw, for instance, from the uh, Indian Ramayana, uh, one of the great epic poems, from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, from Dante, the Italian poet, and uh, John Milton, the English poet, and so forth. And I try to uh, work within those forms, if you will, but dealing with the problems and concerns that are contemporary to us today, how... Can an epic poem speak to life today is what I'm trying to do. And one of the keys in that to me was uh, Joseph Campbell's essay in uh, 1979 titled Earth Rise, after the uh, Apollo 11 landing sometime. Uh, he basically remarked on how uh, the, the overview image, if you will, of planet uh, uh, Mother Earth from the moon has wow. changed our consciousness. And uh, that's the basic image with which I'm working.
0: You know, I think a demonstration would really help our listeners. Why don't you give us an example, uh, a a, a section of your poem?
2: Okay, my pleasure. Uh, From... the uh, second chapter, epic poems are often, re- different chapters are referred to as books. So this is the beginning of book two, and I'm drawing uh, somewhat from uh, my experience on Indian reservations and reading Indian le- legends and myths and so forth. And this is the beginning of uh, book two, On the Moon. A great war cry went up. Drums, tom-tom, the deep bass sound of tightly stretched hide. Chanting of many braves, pounding of hearts, clearing of space. Poets made room for a young Lakota Indian brave, strong and virile, raising a hoop before him, dancing the hoop of his people, the hoop of all the peoples of Mother Earth. Far above, while all stood round, the poets and seers, shamans and singers, griots and troubadours, bards and rhapsodes, watching him pounding moon dust, mesmerized, for he danced in another world, the world as it were of the moon. Behind him all could see the hoop of the earth, beyond the hoop of the hoop of the moon, within the hoop of the moon's own hoop, the hoop of our rotating solar system, the hoop of the spiraling Milky Way, the hoops of the innumerable galaxies, the hoop of the endless universe. His long braid spun with the planets spinning on their axes as he weaved in and out through the nine hoops and the pounding of the drums pulsed through the arteries of the universe.
3: Hmm. Lovely. Thank you, so thank you for cool. that. Tell us, Frederick, a little bit then about uh, the, the where this takes place. This this takes, right.
2: yeah it takes place at the poet on the moon. Yes, uh, at the Apollo landing site, the Sea of Tranquility. Apollo, the Greek god of poetry, calls all poets, ancient and modern, east and west, to assemble on the moon for a parliament uh, of poets to debate the meaning of modernity. And they select one poet, they uh, uh, refer to as the persona, Greek for mast, uh, whom they send on a journey, a sort of uh, Jungian journey, if you will, uh, to the seven continents, visiting all the major religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, so forth, Around the world and uh, uh, different civilizations, uh, uh, Machu Picchu, uh, Chartres Cathedral in Europe, uh, Africa uh, visits eboland uh, I- Land uh, in present-day Nigeria, and so forth, and uh, all over Asia, Japan, China, and India.
3: I love I love the vision of Apollo calling all poets and, and wise people to the moon to to debate the meaning of modernity. I mean, it's such a contemporary question, um, and it's so deliciously wrapped in, in history and culture. Um, and the poet, the persona, uh, character, he travels uh, many journeys to, to find the answers to the meaning of modernity. Does he find an answer, and... Where does he go to to look for these answers?
2: Well, uh, I'm so delighted that that you you like that, and I I do hope he does find an answer in a way. of course, a a paraphrase or pro statement with poetry, uh, I'm always drawn in two directions uh, because the the whole nature of poetry is to suggest and intimate through nuance and so forth. And I fear that if I say the poem means this or that, I've actually I've limited it in some ways. Because uh, as a reader, you you may have a, a sense of, of how broad the scope I'm really trying to deal with. All of human history and culture, religious thought and reflection is what I'm really trying trying to grope with. And where can we as a Uh, Race, humanity, human beings go from here with with all our our problematic um, uh, baggage, if you will, history and otherwise, and violence and so forth. So uh, uh, anyway, through all that struggle, he goes back and forth to the moon four times. The uh, uh, Apollo and the Parliament of Poets send him back and forth uh, into the caves of uh, Lascaux. Uh, in Blombos Cave, very famous new cave that, uh, uh, just discovered in the last few decades in South Africa that goes back to 70,000 uh, years uh, before the Common Era, and they just found remarkable artifacts there by left by uh, early Homo uh, sapiens and so forth. And so, it, in a way, this journey back and forth it takes on many symbolic. Uh, dimensions for me and my mind and and I don't want to cut it from all we knew I feel I've worked 30 years to put in there <laughs> so I don't want to nail it down and say this is it and and some sometimes there's a tendency in in poetry or literature or whatever we we get the meaning and now we've got the plum and the pudding kind of thing we take out the plum and we've got it and really it's about the whole pie and I think in some ways, through all the books, different journeys, uh, I'm trying to create a universal vision of life on this planet, suggested. And uh, there's a, a quotation uh, in, a, in a letter, passage in a letter by Beethoven, uh, in which he's talking about how all the clashes of his music and the conflicts are all about resolving those things in terms of, of, uh, of the form of music. And that was one of the key passages in struggling with how do I write an epic poem for our, our time or attempt to uh, uh, global? Uh, uh, and I, I just felt that in a similar way, I'm pr- trying to create this orchestral music, if you will, symphony in which uh the resolution is felt uh in ways more than thought and and we we you know we are we're, we're such an age of cerebral for the last 150 years plus and whatever modernity uh uh and we've lost touch with the heart and the feeling and the spiritual so much and and so the the real language of my poetry to me, even is not the English language. It's the it's the myths and the metaphors and the symbols that um, I use and try to create and uh, uh, develop and and the way they play off one another to suggest this resolving music, if you will, from the moon. This vision of Mother Earth floating in the in the in the dark blackness of space.
3: Yes. Well, as you know, in my review, uh, I actually used the symbolism of an orchestra. So for, for this reader, this uh, enjoyer of this art form, that certainly is how it, it um, impressed me. And I mean that in the sentient sense, not the cerebral sense. Uh, and I really appreciate what you're saying about this being poem poetry to me my words it's an art form and we really can't dictate um what that means to people it it is an experience um lovely experience and perhaps this would be a good time for you to read another brief passage so listeners could have another sense
2: of that for themselves all right i'd be delighted uh this is an excerpt from uh, uh, book six set in japan the Japanese poet uh, Basho, a uh, haiku poet whom I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, and uh, mention is made of Saigyo. Saigyo uh, precedes Basho by about 500 years and was uh, uh, one of the very famous Japanese poets as well. Set in Japan, Basho took a long time to reply Not far from here are the ruins of the ancient capital of Omi. Like the cherry blossoms of my own hermitage, like those that Tadanori sleeps under in the night, the petals his eternal host, all things pass. Nothing is permanent in this floating world, yours or mine. A breeze in the branches sway, their petals flutter to the floor like snow, covering the ground, wayfarers treading upon them, lowering his voice and eyes with a glance. We nodded in heartfelt agreement. He continued, I will bring all the poets, all will meet you on the moon, join in, attend the parliament poets. Our sensei Saigyo will return you to his great metaphor, the moon. Turning Basho faced the edge of the woods from which a figure emerged an old man in a humble monk's robe master and students bowing respectfully to one another. Basho faded as a shade upon the wind while I a shade in the making remain lingering on with another spirit master who waited for me to join him at a distance, in moonlight, now shimmering on Lake Biwa, evening fading into night.
3: Lovely, thank you, thank you. Frederick, can you talk a little bit about what the new global universal vision of life is?
2: Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, for so long, the world was given to isolated regional civilizations uh, in China, the West, uh, Africa, every place was isolated for millennia really, and every civilization thought of itself as the center of the universe As the (laughs) centuries went by, uh, we were all shocked to discover there were other inhabitants around the world, and and, uh, so uh, all the problems of history developed, some would argue, but uh, we we now just take it for granted. For so long, we've been evolving into and moving into a much greater degree of contact to where with modern travel, communication, the Internet, everything, mm-hmm. you've really become a global civilization. And we're on the threshold of that all all the more many perceptive and sensitive people have fought for a long time. And so what I'm struggling to do uh, is to embody that vision and that vision doesn't originate with me or the poet ever in whatever epic poem it's often said the epic poet is sensitive to what the vision is for the time and is trying to to serve it uh not all not in and of itself create it and And so I I, I do think of it that way, that this vision is greater than I am, and it's something that I'm trying to to help other people see through an imaginative journey, uh, if you will, back and forth from the moon and looking repeatedly uh, across the vast distance of space to Mother Earth.
3: So the vision essentially is, is one of sort of a, a global vision that, that we, you're trying to express that we are no longer that isolated uh, individual communities and cultures so, so much as we are a global, you don't use the word family, but, you know, a a single species, humankind, sharing the same resources and the same hopes and the same dreams and the same
2: challenges. Well, yes, I think so. I mean, I, I don't believe we're all going to become mush, as the expression is, you know. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, I, I do believe there's that unity, that human unity. And uh, as Saul Bell, uh, uh, a novelist, uh Jewish novelist, wrote in the early 60s even, we're all being mixed and poured together. Well, that, we've gone so far beyond that time even where we're all living together. Uh, so many uh, in the United States and elsewhere uh, – uh, the city I grew up here in Michigan was a very isolated white-only community when I was growing up, and now it's absolutely international. Everybody on earth lives here and works here, and it's you know uh, that's happening not just in the United States, but in many places all over the world. And um, yes, there are there are holdouts, <laughs> shall we say, but in the long run, that we we human beings we know genetically. Uh, anthropologically and, and uh, evolution and everything else, that that we are one, ultimately. And uh, so our life has changed, but our consciousness hasn't quite caught up yet. And in, in struggling with how to write and, uh, an epic poem and what, I'm very much trying to serve that vision of human unity and oneness that... So much of the new consciousness movement has has come to realize long ago.
0: He said the magic word, new consciousness. <laughs> That's, That's right. Actually, I was curious. Um, having worked on a poem for 30 years, how do you feel now?
2: Well, uh, uh, just an absolute relief. uh uh, to have finished it It, i i actually just had i had sort of this satori moment if you will where where i was uh, in by the time i got to uh uh, draft about draft five of it 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 just hit me like the proverbial ton of bricks oh my god i've I've done it (laughs) it's sitting on my desk you know it's not in my head anymore i'm not struggling with it i've got five drafts out i'm many more beyond that eventually before i felt it really was done but but uh, uh so for so many years really it was a matter of notes reading i'm going to add this in i want to do that uh, how am i going to bring these together and synthesize them or whatever and harmonize them so um it's uh it's sort of like uh must be the rush of uh, Jungian individuation. You you just feel this this intense sense of satisfaction. So now the problem I have is helping other people know it exists, because I really, part of this has been that it has to be, I have to publish it uh, over a decade and a half, I felt. It has to be in a post-Gutenberg way and global. It's a global epic poem. uh, uh, I hope people will recognize it as. And I have to find a global universal way to reach the readers and in, through the internet and through the other new uh, communication channels such as your own and others. I feel this part of, part of my duty or obligation, I want to set that example that it can be done, that the poet in, in Africa, in Bangladesh, both of where uh, my book has been read and, and reviewed, anywhere on earth can know because it's been not done in act, not theory, that if you write something worthwhile of humanity, you can publish it and reach the whole globe.
0: Well, I actually had a higher vision than that, Frederick. Um, you know how on uh, space probes, They have these little uh, goodie bags full of things like Vitruvius Man. And it is my feeling that they should include a copy of Parliament of Poets because you give this overview, this this, uh, panorama of the best of human civilization, the voice of her poets, the voice of her dreamers and thinkers. And you've done it with great honor to each of them. So I I do want to commend your book to our listeners. Uh, Don't be intimidated by an epic poem. It's really um, and coming back to that image of the storyteller sitting around the campfires of um, the world and dipping into and weaving the story of humanity in the most beautiful, mellifluous language. So kudos to you, sir. Thirty years were not wasted. Here, here.
2: Well, well, thank you so much, Miriam. It's it's, it's an honor for you, for you to say so and, and think it. I I'd, I'd be delighted <laughs> to for such a thing to happen. But um, well, I if anybody
0: to... listening has contacts with <laughs> NASA, <laughs>
2: <laughs> be wonderful. Okay. Uh, so, so,
0: uh Frederick, how do people um learn about what
2: you're doing now? Do you do you have a website? And- uh, I have a website at uh fglacier.com. My last name spelled unusually. Uh I'll spell it out. dot com. or just uh, go to either Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobold or Google Play and type in the Parliament of Poets, and uh, you'll find find my epic poem out there and take your own journey to the moon.
0: Actually, you will find it on NC Review as well, complete with a purchase link. In fact, all of the books that we discuss and all of the interviews will be on our website, ncreview.com. I just had to add a word from our sponsor, obviously.
2: Tomorrow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm so happy.
0: And do you have another work <clears throat>
2: in, in the pipeline? Well, oh, uh, actually, I have a book of essays that are going to come out in September titled uh, <clears throat> The Myth of the Enlightenment, in which I'm really trying to struggle with the more nihilistic vision of modernity, Nietzsche, God is Dead, and so forth. And uh, uh, these are really essays that I wrote sort of uh, during working on my epic poem that that were landmarks for me in um, uh, grappling with all of these things myself. Uh, Tolstoy and uh, Tagore, the Indian poet, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, I have a couple of essays on each of them in there and they're very important to, to my own development as a writer and poet. And uh, that will be available, uh, too, in uh, September. Uh, uh, Very readable, and I I hope some uh, readers, uh, listeners, will uh, uh, seek me out there more, too, uh, after reading my epic.
0: Hmm. You don't take life easy,
2: do you? Well, what's it for? You know, we have to keep working. (laughs) uh, Justify our existence.
3: (laughs) Frederick, thank you so much for joining us today. It has truly been my honor and privilege both to speak with you and perhaps even more so to read your amazing, wonderful book. So thank you so much. We so appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Julie. I I really appreciate your uh, talking with me and and sharing my vision with uh, your listeners. You too, Miriam. Thank you, Frederick.
0: Frederick Glacier, author of The Parliament of Poets. And we also spoke earlier with Patty Conklin on her book, God Within. Well, um, that's kind of our show for today. I do hope that you will join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review and Julie Clayton. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.